So people split into either the really super angry or in, you know, I'll be honest, in my case was just like, hang on a minute, why is a government trying to throw one person under the bus? Something doesn't add up here. Dirty Linen loves a return guest, but we've never had somebody who's come back as quickly as Daisy Miller. There's a very good reason that we've got Daisy back on. She was here on Friday to talk about the Adelaide lockdown, which at, at that point was imminent. Uh, but we've got her back because the lockdown is uh, lifting and the story has taken some very interesting turns. Welcome, Daisy. It is great to have you here. Thanks, Danny. Yeah, what a what a six days this three days has been, hey? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a super <laughs> crazy story. And I suppose when I say story, that's not to diminish the fact that there are, you know, real people who've been yeah. impacted by this situation. It's been, you know, Adelaide's been thrown into, I suppose, a very quiet chaos in some ways because the streets have been emptied out and everyone had to stay home. It's been a super hard lockdown. But um, do you want to talk us through what happened? Bring us up to date. So, yeah, I'm on Friday. We all sat around, um, you know, like like we all do in these lockdowns and waited for the, the press briefing. And um, effectively, we were all told that um, we'd been locked down because a single piece of information provided by a single individual was not true and that because they'd now discovered that that piece of information wasn't true and that there had been a liar at the centre of everything, I think you can tell from my tone quite how I feel about all of this, but anyway, uh, that we were then coming out of the hard lockdown and um, we still needed to give a couple of days to the contact tracers to deal with the cluster, but effectively as of Sunday morning, uh, we were all free to come back how we were post-lockdown, which for us was still under some tighter restrictions than what we had been, but certainly not the no exercise, no leaving your house situation we'd been told about the previous Thursday. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny because I think my uh, my feelings were like, oh, we thought this was a normal lockdown, but then it's like, oh, it's so weird that any lockdown could be considered normal. But when, when we spoke to you, so I guess we spoke to you on Thursday, midnight Thursday was when it was all locking down and uh, you felt pretty like, okay, we've done this, we've done some of this, we sort of know how to do. Like it, um, yeah, you weren't really in a panic. Uh it, it is such a bizarre story because it, it, so uh, and we don't know everything about it and I feel like this is a very much a live story and there's going to be more that comes out and when but I suppose when I say that it's with some hesitation because I really hope that what doesn't come out is the precise identity of the individual that ha apparently caused this situation there have been some thing some identifying um info released about him uh and I think I suppose the important things to say is that he worked at one uh quarantine hotel uh in the kitchen as I understand it he had a second job at a pizza shop um but the thing his lie was that he just said he bought a pizza from the pizza shop he didn't actually work there as it turns out he spent three days working there with somebody else who was COVID positive and that person was known to be and had admitted that he was a security guard at a different quarantine hotel and also worked at the pizza shop um what else well, the other thing I think was really when I as soon as I heard this I thought okay well the guy you know, you just, 
assume that there was something that wasn't quite kosher about his uh, his working situation at the pizza shop, the fact that he felt like he, to me it always seemed like he must have wanted, he felt, to me it felt like he was, he probably thought, and I'm reading into the situation, he probably thought he was giving the contract tracers enough info to get the corona situation under control but not enough to implicate himself, perhaps his employer, in a, some sort of shonky arrangement. When it came out that he was a, on a graduate visa, I thought, oh, well, this totally falls into place because visa holders have been left out and marginalised and put in some pretty desperate situations through the pandemic. They haven't been, you know, if we've all been in it together, they haven't been with us in that togetherness. And that seemed to me to make perfect sense that he felt that he was in a situation where the truth was not going to be his friend. So that's what I know, and this is from just watching the news from Melbourne, but from your from your position in Adelaide, like tell me how it all went down, like what was the feeling around the place and what kinds of things were flying around the internet about this situation? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty remarkable. Um, the, people basically split into two camps. There was the camp that was like, this guy owes us an apology, you know, this, I mean, some ridiculous, like completely out of control, ridiculous things that people, when they're angry, and rightfully so, I think for a lot of people, this was a really like, you know, beyond stressful for, um, you know, I know people that had, you know, surgeries that they had been waiting, you know, up to years for because of, you know, the changes this year. And then there's obviously waiting lists in, you know, People who, mm. you know, lost lost appointments. I know there are people who, you know, had, uh, you know, lots of lots of losses in their business, and there are, you know, I've got friends who have who have got um, children with disabilities, and they weren't able to access their their sort of um, caring support. It was all sorts. Of, it was so fast. The lockdown. There was ten hours, as we spoke about the other day. Yeah. I understand why people were really angry. So yeah. people split into either the really super angry or in, you know, I'll be honest, in my case was just like, hang on a minute, why is a government trying to throw one person under the bus? Something doesn't add up here. So there was a there was a group of people going, I expect more from my government uh, than locking us down with 10 hours notice off of the word of a single person. And then there was another group of people who were saying that single person who lied, who caused this lockdown, I have faith in my government. I have faith that my government made the right decisions for our community when it comes to COVID-19 because it's such an unpredictable disease. This person owes us all an apology. Um, the other unfortunate thing was that the, the family at the centre of this from, from the first case was had been identified earlier in the week as being of South Asian um, uh, origin. So the when the, the liar you know, when they talked about this liar, the assumption was made that that person was from the same community and the and the racism that started coming out on some of these, um, you know, some of these Facebook posts and Twitter posts and 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 reviews on their on their Google site and reviews on their Facebook page and TripAdvisor and um, well, I understand that Google has got some kind of algorithm, whereas if there's a high amount of single star reviews all at once, they just block the page out. Um, okay. And Facebook did the same thing. So within about an hour of the announcement, the Google page had gone. The Facebook page had had been shut down a couple of hours after that. TripAdvisor, I think, was the same. So it was like everyone was sitting at home. They put a police guard at the at the pizza shop as well, like pretty instantly. Um, it was shocking the amount of like community anger that 
that happened. And did you uh, disappointing? I, mean, I have to say. Yeah. It, what about yourself personally? Did um, did anything sort of come your way? Um. So yeah. I mean, I posted about you know my feelings were that the government had had a hair trigger, and that. I was disappointed that they were trying to divert what I would assume from my my background's actually in, in public policy and before t- um, our head chef, my husband, Terry, um, bought a restaurant six years ago. I was working um, in a non-government organisation in health as a consumer advocate. So I understand systems aren't perfect. So my assumption was there's been a system failure here and I publicly put that um, up on Facebook and then started getting a couple of private messages saying, you know how wrong I was <laughs> in some some pretty impolite terms. It was it was yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, it was really. But I was I, I mean, was angry from, too. I just my anger was directed somebody somewhere different, not at an individual, at a at a well, group I, and at a system. Yeah, I mean, the premier Stephen Marshall really threw this person under the bus. Like he said, Absolute, he yeah. lied. He said the selfish actions of this individual have put our whole state in a very difficult situation. It's completely and utterly unacceptable. I mean, that is a lot to put on one person. Who, no matter, I don't. We don't know. We it's don't know huge, and even working, honestly, it, yeah. Go it, on. It working backwards. Sorry, Danny. I'm, I get like. Rah! Um, working backwards from from those statements, to try and apportion blame on a single person in any situation is is always like, you know, I, I'm a parent. I have a I have an eight year old and a five year old. It's never one person's fault. You know, what I mean? I'm, de- I'm dealing with getting to the bottom of stories all the time. The idea that the adult in this situation, being the premier or the government, is trying to throw the children. Do you know what I mean? Like, what what are yeah. you talking about? It's just it just it was so full on. The only result that was going to come out of rhetoric like that was going to be community anger, and and the risks of what was going to happen were extremely high. Like a, a group of people who are locked down and angry and anxious and fearful about their state, about what they're going to do at Christmas, people who have lost holidays. I mean, I was meant to be in Kangaroo Islands. Like I lost a holiday. I lost lots of money in my business. I understand, right, that the, the, the visceral reaction to want something to blame. But one guy, like I just, I'm, I'm still lost on it. I'm still lost on how a, the amount of media training politicians have to have, the amount of communications um, training and understanding that politicians have to have for him to stand at that podium in, in this sort of really highly fraught time and speak that way was just disappointing, honestly. It, it's also against every sort of public health protocol. Uh, abs- uh, yes. Which, <laughs> which is about. forward? Exactly. Yeah. Which is about not a portion. It's like it's not a portioning blame. It's about standing beside people so you can try to, you know, appreciate their situation and encourage them to speak. I mean, this whole idea that as immediately after he was um, blamed, there, there was the question of there's no mechanism to punish him and that that, that was the problem. Oh, and then there's a task the, force yeah. set up with 20 detectives on this case. Like where is the where are the twenty detectives on how the um, virus got out of hotel quarantine in the first place? And where are the twenty detectives asking the employer why uh, he or she did not come forward to with a list of their employees? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, that's that's exactly right. In the first case, we know that the person that he caught it from, who was also, and it's look, it's an interesting thing talking about um, infection like this. But just bear with me. But but what we we know that the person that he caught it from was was working in another Medi hotel and was related to the, the family group with the, the, the cleaner mm. was from. So that generation, generation one, we say is the cleaner. Generation two was her mother who got the swab in the hospital um, late on Saturday night, early Saturday morning. And then, and then the rest of the family was isolated and tested on the Sunday. And at that point, that, that gentleman from, from that family group had said that he was working at Woodville Pizza. So that was on the Sunday. The fact that the the other security guard, this the, the, this this guy, the premier called a liar, was tested on the Monday, and his results came back on the Monday afternoon. The from what I understand, the Woodville Pizza um, staff had already been locked down related to the previous generation of of cases. Of course, yeah. so okay. it can't just be like in their explanations. What I can't get my head around is how this one guy was meant to have told one lie when actually. The place that he worked at, that group of people were already contacted by contact tracers the day before to be locked down and have the contact. Do you know what I mean? Like we're already the story doesn't add up. It's a, it's yeah. obviously it's it's impossible that it's a systems uh, that it's a sorry that's an individual's lie versus a systems error. And I get that they're moving targets, and I get how complex it is, but I just think that makes it all the more. Um, disappointing that a single person uh, has been thrown under the bus like this. Um, yeah. yeah, because I think anyway. what, what we what we've seen through these lockdowns is that you really need to bring the community with you for them to work. And I was so impressed. Like in South Australia, the opposition leader was you know very much standing beside the premier and the public health team saying yeah. whatever you do we trust you that that certainly wasn't the experience that we had in Victoria where the opposition was carping and undermining at every turn so I mean it, to me it, it seemed like a major bummer but a swift public health response that you could understand you know you, you trust them you, you feel like you can understand the circumstances and I just hope that um that uh well I hope that South Australia and every other Australian state is doesn't have a similar situation because it's, uh, yeah, I don't know where the public confidence is going to be. Like, you know, God help anyone who tries to lock Adelaide down next time. Uh, this is, for, for me, that that's, that's the danger. Like I don't feel, you know, like we're, we're going into Christmas and yet we're opening up and the, and the police commissioner has said that, on the 1st of December, they're going to lift the restrictions back to what they were pre, pre-cluster. pre <laughs> All these, it's just how many new terms do we have to talk about this year? I mean, like. We have yeah, a lot. The, the circuit breaker and the community pause and the, yeah, it's all, anyway. But before this, before this cluster was identified, we were at one person per two square metres um, in South Australia in hospitality. And then when they um, sort of discovered this on the Monday, like I was saying to you, we went to the four square metres. So that was already like a big change because that was pretty instant. And then by the Wednesday, they had announced this lockdown from, from midnight. Um, so it was all very, uh, very quick. So the idea that we could be at December 1 and we could be reopening up uh, with one person per two square metres is like it's it's great but given how fast we flip-flopped 
it doesn't fill me with confidence for, you know, taking deposits from bookings and, um, and you know, right. and securing large bookings and being able to be, you know, we're, we're looking into, into next week and, you know, shall we be trying to fill the, the restaurant from December 1st? Shall we be taking bookings and opening up our reservation system to take 24 people in the restaurant at a time instead of 12? Or do we keep it closed down and just take 12 people at a time because that's more risk averse? And then through doing that, do we end up losing? You know, it's, there's no faith in, in how it will, like what will happen next. And I think that's probably the most significant damage in all of this is that it's so hair trigger and it's, and it's, and it's been up and back. And do you know what I mean? Like that's. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. So what have you been doing today, Daisy? Like, have you been calling people and rebooking reservations that you'd had previously cancelled? So I pretty much started doing that as soon as the announcement came through. I drafted an email to people whose bookings we'd cancelled because we obviously cancelled them for the whole six days um, and said, I want to give you guys priority to to rebook. Um, And then there were a whole lot of people who, um, you know, because we had to they had bookings coming up this week and we had to work around them. So I sent an email to those people saying, hey, you've got a booking coming up. Um, we're still at four square metres. We're now going to go back to doing two seating. So if you're booked before, you know, on or before seven o'clock, I'm pushing your booking to six and after seven o'clock, I'm pushing your book till, booking till eight. Please let me know if this doesn't suit you. Bear with me while I work around. Um, so, yeah, it's just been like shuffling, you know, yeah, probably about 80 bookings over the over the next couple of weeks. Um, and that's only up until December 1st. So I've pretty much been rebooking people <laughs> since the announcement. And then yep. today we had, um, we got out all of our staff in and we just, you know, spoke to them about um, if they feel comfortable coming into work, how they're feeling about, um, you know, the lead up to Christmas, who, you know, who wants to, we're going to go back to doing takeaway and delivery, just try and boost some of that turnover um, and whether uh-huh. or not people feel, whether our staff who are, you know, they're, they're front of house staff, they're not delivery drivers, whether they feel comfortable doing that or not. Um, yeah, planning the Christmas party <laughs> was yeah. um, bringing, all, bringing all of that booze, um, you know, that we packed away back downstairs and, and st- stocking everything back up again. Um, oh it was, it was, yeah, just a pretty hands-on day. Um, but wow, I've got a good team. The, well, I mean, your team, you, you're such a communicator and, you know, you're obviously looking after your team, but I guess one of the things that is, strikes me about this situation, you know, with this, this, uh, quote unquote liar is that it sounds like he was in a very insecure work situation. And Absolutely we know that a lot right, of people yeah. in hospitality are in insecure work do you, I mean, what do you think about that? Is that something that um, sort of, you know, crosses your field of vision much, something that you've experienced yourself or had people around you experience? Well, yeah, I mean, at this at the start of, of um, COVID, at the start of, um, of March or the end of March, whatever end we were looking at, um, before, before they announced um, JobKeeper, We'd, we'd closed our restaurant and just sent everybody, like I've got a couple of staff who have, who have got um, family who work in health and another couple who have got, you know, very elderly relatives who live with them. And so we just said, right, no takeaway, no. We were in a good position to be able to say, let's just have a little little bit of a, a pause in our little um, Soy 38 pause. Um, and I sent everybody off um, and we agreed that we would, you know, we would pay them you know, sort of what we could in terms of their casual wages because 
because all of my staff bar one were casual. Um, mm-hmm. Then when JobKeeper was announced, I very quickly figured out that the way it had been designed was was probably not really to work in hospitality's favour. I mean, I would say that the majority of hospitality businesses have got a turnover of staff where there is a a large percentage of their staff that haven't been there for a year just because of the nature of, um, you know, students working and and taking time off and going on exchange, you know, in in previous times. Um, So the idea that this was set up so that people had to have worked for a year in the job that they were in was already like, okay, well, which of my staff does that not count for? And and not many because most of my staff have worked for me for a while, but one of them had had this, this big sort of six-month pause in her employment in the last eight months. And so um, that was – I didn't know if I could count her. And then I've got three staff who are on international visas and I, they were yep. left out. And, you know, it was about, okay, what we have to use JobKeeper for is to subsidise um, our payroll so that we can afford to pay our casuals who have been left out of this system. And, mm. like, there was a big report that was released this afternoon about the fact that um, it seems to be the way a lot of people used it was that it saved, I think that the report today said it saved 700,000 jobs and that, you know, uh, one in one in five or one in ten international, I don't have it in front of me, sorry, Danny, but... Um, a number of international students, um, their jobs were saved via JobKeeper, not because they themselves were eligible for it, but because they were part of a team where the rest of the team was. And so paying them their casual wages was was less of a burden on the small business. So insecure work is one thing. Insecure work in a pandemic is another thing. From what I understand, international students have had to continue to pay their student fees throughout the pandemic. They're already not allowed to work as many hours. It's, um, you know, 20 hours uh, mm. a week maximum or 40 hours a fortnight. And so already they're in quite insecure jobs anyway, which means that, you know, people, people, not not everyone, not, not um, you know, tarring everyone with the same brush, but, you know, a lot of international students will look for some cash in hand work to subsidise the 20 hours a week that they're doing because international student fees are so high, rent Mm. is high, you know, getting around, especially in a town like Adelaide where public transport is not great, you know, most people are trying to run a car. It's all very expensive. And so to me, the idea that during a pandemic, we would leave already, you know, people that would have diminished savings and a diminished ability to find work anyway, and we would leave them out of that and then employ them in the jobs that are most at risk, and then question how we have a community outbreak. It, it's, it's crazy. We've designed a system that, that perpetuates risk. Um, yeah. Sorry, I know I just talked at you for a minute there, but no, but I mean, you're really distilling things that things that I also believe. And uh, to me, it's like, you know, this so-called lie lies at the feet of the people that designed JobKeeper. And I mean, I haven't seen the report that you speak about. And what it's, but what it says to me, or your summary of it says to me, is that there are businesses that care about these internationals that aren't being supported by the government. And that's being proven by that statistic that you shared and but that the government that administers that program doesn't <laughs> administer it in such a way that makes it 
easy. Like the purpose of that um, program is not to support those people. Businesses were put in a position where they had to use it as a workaround so that they could support these actual people who are actually there in front of them with actual expenses. And you're right, like the, the most of the courses are, are paid by direct debit. So those, you know, and their visas are dependent on them paying those course fees. So the, those people are really in a bind. Um, so it's just I just find it enraging and then for a, a, for a politician to blame somebody without knowing their full circumstances and admittedly we don't know the circumstances either like maybe this, this is just a you know who knows what we're going to find out like you know and I hope we don't find out too much but um it's it's I don't talk about the circumstances of this individual, but what I do talk about is the systemic problems that marginalise people, leave them on the outer, and when they're on the outer, how can we be surprised when they don't act like they are in, when they don't, you know, give over every bit of information that um, may or may not help contact tracers and therefore the health department make a decision that, you know, follows logically on. It's, it, I mean, it, I would say that it's um, the systemic problems that create a situation where somebody lies and then following on from that create a system where there is community division, people who are angry and yelling at each other because they're angry about different things and undermine the whole community's trust in the public health system that we all rely on to keep our community safe. So, you know, you cannot you have to draw a line between all these things. You have to join all these things up because they are absolutely linked. And to put it at the feet of one individual is just an, it's just an absolute disgrace, a terrible misreading of the situation. It is race baiting and it is sowing community division. And we found out that this person is Spanish and honestly, thank God that we found that out because you know, he's probably white. Do you know what I mean? Imagine if we'd found out this person was was Chinese or Indian or Sudanese or, you know, the the fear that I would then have like would would, you know, exponentially increase. That it's just a totally oh, scary situation. At the at the start of all of this, um, so my our head chef, my husband, Terry, is Thai. So our kids are um, mixed race and uh, mixed heritage and they are um, they are sort of uh, much darker skinned than I am and both appear, you know, when I, I have been questioned before whether I adopted them. It's an interesting, Australia okay. is an interesting place to live in at the best of times. But at the start of all of this, I was in the supermarket with my daughter and I had this woman um, who was, I didn't pick it up at first, but um, she was basically making comments about, you know, my filthy mongrel children and, you know, like this was at the start of like the Chinese virus and that kind of stuff and I kind of shuffled Adelaide away. Adelaide's also my daughter's name. And um, I kind of shuffled her away and, and tried to get her away from it. And, you know, people around us were noticing what was going on, but nobody really knew what to do or say. And then I've got staff who are, um, you know, from different parts of Southeast Asia, obviously Thailand, um, a really uh, lovely girl um, called Chloe, who's um, who's been fantastic and, and she's very resilient and she has very interesting conversations with me. Uh, she's from Vietnam and she had this incident on a bus where 
um, she was spat at on the bus and told to get oh. off of the bus. And, and, you know, one of my, one of my kitchen, kitchen hands had was crossing the road and had somebody um, revving their engine uh, at them as if they were going to run them down and, and shouting obscenities out the window as they tried to cross the road. This was at the start of the year. And my fear about this year and the, you know, this is like, you know, three incidences, yeah, which are, which are all quite um, jarring incidences. But this was, this was caused by the rhetoric of, you know, this, this virus coming from Asia and the, and the way that we talk about the transmission of viruses and, and it being um, a fault of the host. Like <laughs> the, the thing that this whole issue and this, this issue of the liar really brought up for me and I guess the reason why I jumped to blame you know, uh, the government and the government reaction to it and also my disappointment in in the Premier and his rhetoric is because once you erode that kind of um, that decency and that politicians speak and that, that media speak that we all, you know, it, it gets criticised from time to time but it's there to kind of hold a standard and as soon mm. as you start to erode that, it leaks into into real life. It's like, okay, the rules have been changed and I can behave in a different way. And my, yeah. you're right. Like as soon as they said on that second day when they were, you know, doing the amazing circus trick of standing up at a podium and pedaling backwards, um, mm-hmm. the, 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 when they said he was a Spanish national, I, I also felt relief because I thought like, God, I don't want any other communities to have to suffer through any other kind of, you know, discriminate. Mm. No, it's not just discrimination at this point. It's like outward. And I'm look. I'm I'm. I grew up in middle class white Australia. I've I've been quite sheltered. You know, my my first experience of that kind of racism on a personal level was this experience with my daughter. But mm. it really, yeah, I felt that relief as well. And that says something else about this whole situation. I mean, like when we talk about the systemic thing, there's the, there's one is the system that led this guy to, to, to lie, which I mean, set aside for a minute, because like I said, the other guy who he worked with had already said that he was working in the pizza bar. And surely at that point they were identifying all of the workers at the pizza bar. And so if, you know, this Spanish guy's name was left off the list, then it's not the Spanish guy who lied. It's a different group of people. So let's Mm -hmm. leave aside the fact that apportioning blame to him in the first place seems to be questionable. But, uh, you know, there's, like you say, there's those identified risks and we don't know about this individual's um, circumstances, but we can already identify the issues of insecure work um, as as a visa holder, as a graduate, so on and so forth, that may lead him to feel like he needed to lie. So there's that Mm -hmm. one problem in the system. The other problem in the system, which is where my kind of eyebrow raises as well, is how the interviews are being conducted that meant that he didn't feel safe enough to like if we if we acknowledge which we both you know disagree with that he t- that he told a lie right so let's just say right they did lock us down on the, on the on a single case of a lie which they're backtracking on now anyway but let's say they did why did the contact tracing not have a system in place where he felt safe enough to disclose this sort of thing, just you know, people lying about how they how they contracted a, a a disease. We've known that people lie for for years and years, decades and decades and decades, and especially things were learned around the start of the AIDS epidemic um, with HIV contact tracing, mm. because a lot of what would 
you know, would happen is that you would have, you know, closeted, um, closeted gay men, um, uh, drug users who were, you know, otherwise um, sort of, yeah, I guess the, the term used to be, I don't think it is anymore, but like high functioning um, sex work, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And so when those contact tracers were, were trying to make sure that they could kind of, you know, stop the, stop the spread, the way that they would contact trace was first to identify um, kind of confidentiality, really secure, you know, make sure the other person understood that this is about contact tracing. It's absolutely not about identifying the individual. Um, it's about, yeah, uh, confidentiality and impunity. And if you set the foundation of uh, confidentiality and impunity, you don't give the person any reason to need to lie. You know, nothing you yes. say to me will incriminate you. And so I don't know how, you know, they've they've been saying that that's how their contact tracing is working, which, which brings you back to, well, then what were the causes for the lie, which makes the lie less likely, leave alone shutting down a whole state based on one person's word where due diligence wasn't taken in that. <laughs> like it all comes back to a systems problem is what I'm getting at. Um, and, for the, also, and for the Premier to, yeah. Oh, sorry, Daisy. I was just it also what the um, Chief Health Officer and the Premier put about was that it was a new virulent strain of the virus, which commentary instantly came back from, you know, scientists saying yeah. yeah nah don't don't think so just um everything they're saying sounds just like it's coronavirus it's you know it's a strain we know about doesn't really sound like it but the fact that and now they've backpedaled from from that assertion yep. that it's a new and particularly virulent strain i think even that they would go to to questionable science rather than better like this interviewing yeah it, yeah it's pretty it's pretty uh doesn't doesn't seem like yeah it doesn't seem like due diligence was um was occurring so yeah you know this is the thing so the straw that broke the camel's back they went from saying we made the decision based on one person's lie and we're furious about the lie and then the following day it was like oh no it was just the straw that broke the camel's back um so it was just the last piece of the puzzle that we needed that you know that blah 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 so again from a systems point of view if you've got one thing that's going to tip you over you better be sure that that thing is accurate Mm. and I understand that like so a couple of things happened when they locked us down like I said it happened around sort of you know two two o'clock in the afternoon I remember saying to you that we sit across from a from a um a supermarket Mm. and within about an hour and a half there was queues and people acting completely crazy so they they made this announcement in the middle of the day straight away people were in schools pulling their children out of um out of school classrooms people were in the supermarkets behaving completely erratically there was a run on toilet paper you know, all of the eye-rolling things we've come to expect in this pandemic when, you know, group thinking people start acting um, sort of poorly under stress um, as a community. These things are all known now, these actions that we take and these responses mm. that we have as a community. We, we know about them. They're not surprising. You know, the, the fact that toilet paper being missing was a joke this time, um, I mean, it became a joke last time, but we all knew it was going to happen, right? It's predictable. The idea that you wouldn't wait four more hours until kids are home from school, parents are home from work, and you can then say, you know, like, we are making this decision that, you know, from tomorrow we're going into a lockdown to give people time to 
get mm. their act together. Um, or if it did indeed turn out that somebody had caught it from a hot pizza box and that was, you know, we had this new incredibly um, intense strain, new strain of COVID-19 and how unlucky were we in Adelaide that this this was the strain that made it out of, of, you know, quarantine hotels. All of the unlikelihoods have led to this thing that gets passed within 24 hours and is the most, you know, blah, 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 then lock us down at midnight. Like if it had to be a hard lockdown, then 10 hours or six hours wasn't going to matter. The damage was going to be done. But what that four hours would have allowed them to do would be to figure out if that straw that broke the camel's back or that final piece of the puzzle was accurate or not. Like, mm. do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like, there wouldn't have been a rush to the shops because the shops would be closed. There wouldn't be a rush on dragging kids out of the classrooms and and yeah, and causing they that kind that. because they wouldn't have been at school. Like, the it's a whole lot of kind of I and I don't see how four hours or six hours even was going to make a difference in in terms of the risk to the community of the virus versus like I get that 48 hours notice is going to like risk community spread I get that but four hours to do due diligence on a single patient and to put all of your efforts into that single case to determine whether locking down an entire state is going to be the appropriate thing to do. I don't understand how we discovered that, like, the following day. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway. it, yeah. It is, yeah, there's a lot of questions and I'm sure that eventually there'll be some quite interesting answers <laughs> that um, come out. <laughs> yeah. I suppose one thing that I do think is, you know, I heard today that in the UK, which is um, in, a, in the midst of a dreadful second wave, Boris yeah. Johnson, the Prime yeah. Minister, has decided to take a break from their not very hard or effective lockdown for Christmas. So a yeah. five-day break from lockdown so that families can gather, which seems like the worst idea. I suppose yeah. at least one thing that we can be grateful for is that we are able to make these decisions uh, <laughs> or the people around us are able to make decisions even if they're not entirely um comprehensible or correct they're yeah. making them from a re- position of relative strength and safety so I absolutely oh, like Danny honestly I wouldn't want to be for sure I wouldn't want to be don't get me wrong like the the idea that I'm being this critical of the government is because you know I always say to my staff if I walk into the restaurant and the only thing that I can find wrong is that the table is set a little bit wonky or I fix one fork or I wipe down one bench top that's not me like being nitpicking. That's you guys holding it, the space to a standard where I don't have anything to complain about. Like, but I, it's, it's, I'm the owner and yeah. it's my job to make sure that things are held to a pretty high standard. If I apply that idea to the government, the fact that I'm nitpicking these small things rather than sitting in the UK and questioning how on earth there's not enough PPE for the NHS staff or how there is mm. not enough testing or how they haven't had effective contact tracing at all leave alone for this one guy for four extra hours which is what I'm nitpicking about like we have had governments around Australia that have done a phenomenal job like really granted we you know JobKeeper for all of its flaws has has also been a saving grace to businesses everywhere I'm not I like I'm not critical in major ways I'm critical in minor ways because I think it's really important when it comes to public policy especially around health that we do get a little bit nitpicky actually like yeah you know well, I, I just 
go on. Yeah. Oh no, no. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm really proud of, of how we've come out of it in Australia. I'm, I'm, I am really thrilled. So yeah, I hope that you know when people are listening to this, they don't think, oh well, it's all very well for you to say you're not in a position where you'd have to shut down a whole state. It's like, well, great, and I'm really grateful that I'm not. But yeah, yeah, no, you know, because I think it's, it's also the, yeah. it's, it's, it's. It's great to be able to say it from a position of strength and we have done an amazing job in Australia and we're super lucky yeah. and I feel just grateful every day. But I do think that the um, to marginalise an other as uh, people in a community is dangerous and you've shown how it is dangerous and how people uh, have a, feel they have a licence to be racist and to feel like, yeah. you know, um, that they're more deserving of being in a certain place and having certain rights and I think that is absolutely dangerous and that's not I don't think that's who we want to be so no it's worth it's definitely I think it's important to celebrate the achievements and call out the things that could be done better because um uh yeah racism diminishes all of us and absolutely um, correct yeah we can do better yeah yeah Daisy and I and I, oh sorry <laughs> no let's yeah say let's say some final words well, I oh, know I was going to say it's just it, it. It's been a really interesting time. I think that that hospitality as well has to reflect on the insecure nature of our industry as well. So, like while I'm being critical, we could spend another like 45 minutes talking about the nature of insecurity that is built into hospitality because it's you know it's not just about student you know, international students being in insecure work. It's about, you know, hospitality not being a secure place of work for women, about like just any old student, about older people. Like it's it's really, it's a good time for us to all look at like the fragility of our industry and the fact that maybe some of that fragility has been, you know, self-perpetuated by the, the nature of the way that we've always done things. So um, I'm also critical of our industry. I'm not, I'm not just critical of the government. I'm critical of, I'm crit- I'm just a systems critic, Danny. <laughs> I think it's great. I I kind of think you should get back into policy, and perhaps um, <laughs> you can you can be premier uh, next time we have. Oh God! Like, God forbid, <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> I literally um, cannot think of anything worse. <laughs> it's a bloody bloody tough job. So kudos to anyone. It is absolutely absolutely right. Uh, it's been amazing to talk to you and I think all those workplace issues that you talk about will definitely uh, be a focus of dirty linen. So you never know. We'll have to have you on every few days, Daisy, as threatened at the beginning <laughs> of this chat. But um, thank you so much for be coming back on today. Yeah, absolute My pleasure. pleasure. And good luck opening up Soy 38. I cannot wait to get to so A-Town and come and eat with you. Please, please, it would be a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. All right. Take care. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.